0: All right, the book of Jeremiah, go to chapter 4. Go to Jeremiah chapter 4. Briefly look at verses 23 to 31. I'll give you just a second. Then I'll ask the review question, and you can look really smart. All right, Jeremiah 4, the last section, is 23 to 31. All right. That's the last section. Just briefly look at it. Some of your Bibles will give that section some kind of a title. I'll give you a second to look at it. Tell me when you're done getting the basic idea. Jeremiah chapter 4, 23 to 31. For those listening online, you can look at Jeremiah 4, 23 to 31. Because here in a minute I'll ask a question and everyone will look really smart. Like you've been studying the book of Jeremiah, you've been reading it. depending on the type of Bible you have. Some Bibles don't really break things down into kind of sections. Some Bibles do. I think in this particular case for Jeremiah, a Bible that breaks it down into some kind of sections and give them titles may be actually helpful. Only because there's so much going on and it can be convoluted and confusing. And we don't, sometimes we don't know who's speaking. All right? Everybody got it? Pretty good. All right, you you got it, okay? Everybody else? All right, I'm going to assume you're all experts now. Okay, so, in our last episode okay, we looked at Jeremiah chapter 4, and that chapter ends with what is happening, or what happened in the end of chapter 4. In fact, is it, well, I'm not even going to ask you anything I said. You just read it. So wh- how do we understand that section? What do we call that? All right, so I'm going to call it destruction. I think I, did I, I, I mean, possibly like the, someone could have possibly preached one time and said something about it possibly be, being a lament? Okay, right? right? And if it's a lament, who, who would be the one speaking? Let's start in Jeremiah 4, 23. We start with the pronoun, I. I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void, and the heavens, um, uh, and the heavens, and they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. I beheld, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens were fled. Now remember, many reference this back to Genesis, and then the gap theory. We, remember we mentioned all of that, if you do remember anything that we talked about. But, who speak? we didn't go into a great detail about who's speaking, because a lot of people was like, oh, this is, this is Genesis. Well, in Genesis, who's speaking? We kind of say God. So who's speaking here? Is this God through Jeremiah or is just Jeremiah speak? Like we we can get a lot going on here, but many view this as kind of a lament of Jeremiah crying out about what what he's going to see, right? When judgment comes. But let's, let's just read it very quickly. We can just kind of get a basic idea of what's going on here. I, beheld, I read uh, verse 23, 24, 25, 26. I beheld and lo, the fruitful places was a wilderness and all the cities thereof were broken down at the presence of the Lord and by his fierce anger. For thus hath the Lord said, The whole land should be desolate, yet I will not make a full end. Judgment is coming, desolation is coming, suffering is coming. That's the basic idea, right? I mean, I know we can get into some very specifics and go, well, wait a minute, who's talking? We can get into all of that. Clearly, we know where it's recording what God said, yes? And verse 27, for thus hath the Lord... Said So is the other part something Jeremiah is getting an ability to see what it's going to look like? He's being able to see what's happening. Is he, is he responding to something already happening? We, are lots of different questions we could have here, right? All right. Then he says, uh, for this shall be the earth, for this shall the earth mourn and the heavens above be black because I have spoken it. I have purposed it and will not repent. Neither will I return back from it. Now we know who's speaking obviously in verse 28, right? That's clearly God, all right? Verse 29, the whole city shall flee for the noise of the horsemen and bowmen. They shall go into the thickets and climb up upon the rocks. Every city shall be forsaken, and not a man dwell therein. Now, we can ask ourselves some questions here, just some some basic hermeneutical questions before we go where we need to go. And I don't want to spend too much time, but I just want to connect it to where we're going. Whenever these situations are being described, right, we have two options in how to understand them, right? What are our two options and how to understand when it's talking about the destruction and all and, oh, this is going to happen to the cities and there'll be no man. It uses all of this kind of language. We got two options and how do we understand it? What are our two options? Option number one is literal or it's kind of poetic hyperbole, right? It doesn't mean every single person, every single this. So, And that's very difficult to know what to do with it, right? Because, if, because on one hand, if we say it's just kind of poetic hyperbole, well then, okay, if the destruction was exaggerated, then what could that lead... In other words, if the destruction and the judgment is poetic hyperbole, what does that literally lead you to later on in the book? The restoration... Is poetic hyperbole. And if the restoration is poetic hyperbole, then we cannot say we are looking for a literal fulfillment of the restoration, which is what we typically have to do if we're going to say, okay, wait a minute, this has not been fulfilled yet, right? When it comes to the restoration, what do we say? It hasn't been fulfilled that way, therefore it has to be fulfilled in the future, literally. Well, wait a minute. If the destruction being described is not literal, then the restoration is not literal. And that would be a win for which uh, view of eschatology? More of the amillennial view. So that raises all kinds of questions. Now we could spend you know 15 hours debating it. But you should always realize that. That sometimes when it's describing this destruction, you have to ask yourself, well wait a minute. Is that exactly... Because that seems... I mean, look at verse 23. I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void. Was that literal? Well, if you take it literal, then people connect it back to Genesis 1. Then that leads to an argument for the gap theory. If it's not literal, then you're like, okay. It's describing the destruction in a hyperbolic, poetic way. Therefore, when it comes to the restoration you can make an argument that it should also be interpreted in. These are the kinds of issues that anyone reading the book of Jeremiah should be noting, they should be struggling with, and they should be trying to figure it out. And what it should do is immediately humble you and go, hmm, all these people who speak about their system of eschatology with such passion and certainty, there's lots of things here to consider and what we do and how we handle it. So we continue. Uh What verse did we stop in? Verse, we'll see. Verse twenty-nine. The whole city shall flee for the noise of the horsemen and bowmen. They shall get into thickets and climb up upon the rocks. Every city shall be forsaken, and not a man dwell therein. Is every city going to be completely forsaken? There, there's not one person left in it. I, I mean, I mean, see that that raises the questions, right? I mean, it could be. I mean, I'm just, I'm just throwing out. I mean, it could. I mean, it could be. I mean, again, um, what you do with this is going to greatly impact how you do other things in, in the book. And then verse thirty: and when thou art spoiled, what will thou do? Though thy clothes clo- clothest thyself with crimson, though thou deckest thyself with ornaments of gold, though thou rent- rentest thy face with painting in vain, shall thou make thyself fair? Thy lovers will despise thee. They will seek thy life. In other words, are you going to try to go do everything you can to say, hey, hey, don't hurt us, right? You're going to do everything you can to appease them. and Well, they're going to take your life. And then what happens in verse 31? If I've heard a voice of a woman in travail, and the anguish as of her that bringeth forth her first child, the voice of the daughter of Zion that bewaileth herself, that spreadeth her hand, saying, Woe is me now, for my soul is weary because of murderers. It leaves in a very bad place, does it not? It's very depressing. It sounds horrible. It sounds like, what do we do with that? And from that, now tonight, what we need to do is try to cover two chapters. That's what we need to do. There's no, I don't think there's any way possible. But I'm going to do everything in my power to move through this not the, the problem is I could move through it in a really quick way and then I could say well good we finished five and six we're catching up we're doing what we're supposed to but then I would leave going but it was trash uh, or I could try to do it well I'm going to really cover this and then I'll be like well now I'm upset because we went too slow and we covered too much and now we're losing the overall plot I got to try to find that happy medium I'm not I'm not going to even pretend that I can But let's go to chapter five and see what we can find. All right. Now, if does who has Bibles here? Who breaks the chapter into sections? All right. How does your Bible break up the first section? Our verse just one and two. One through five. Does your? No, it doesn't. Okay. So mine breaks it to one through five. Um most commentaries seem... You see, what does this one do? This one breaks it down verses 1 through 3. All right? So... We've got, we've got all kinds of, de- and look, I, I, I think it's interesting, for a book like Jeremiah, any of the major prophets, I think, are and even in some of the minor prophets, sometimes it's helpful to just see how the translators break it down, because they're, they're almost giving you an idea, well, we consider this like a section, and then we consider this a section, and we consider this a section. Most commentaries that outline this, they break it down verses 1 through 2. All right, even though the Bibles don't necessarily break it down that way. This one breaks it down one through five. But let's go through, let's go one through two and see what's going on in verses one through two. Jeremiah 5, one through two. All right, we got these horrible words of the desolation that's coming and the destruction. And then Jeremiah 5, starting in verse one Run ye to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. And see now, and know and seek in the broad places thereof if you can find a man. If there be any that executeth judgment, that seeketh the truth, and I will pardon it. Now, at least in the flow of thought, it's like, do you see how bad it's going to be? You see how bad it is? Now go and do what? Find someone. Go and find someone. All right, that, that's clearly the thought in verse one, right? Verse two, and though they say the Lord liveth, surely they swear falsely. Now that seems to go with who they're going to look for, which makes it very depressing, right? Go look for someone, but if you find someone who says what? As surely as the Lord lives, what about them? Right. In other words, even if you find someone who appears to be religious, it's a fake religious thing. So in other words, it seems like a very, uh, almost like a waste of time. Go find someone. And even if you find someone religious, it's not going to be so good. It's the idea to go find someone. Now, starting in verse three. Now, this is just a question just for organizational purposes. Now, look at verse three through five. We'll just read three through three through five. Um O Lord, are not thine eyes upon the truth? Thou hast stricken them but they have not grieved. Thou hast consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than a rock. They have refused to return. Therefore, I said, surely these are poor. They are foolish for they know not the way of the Lord nor the judgment of their God. I will get me unto the great man and will speak unto them for they have known the way of the Lord and the judgments uh, of their God, but these have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. Now, we, we've talked about that, breaking the yoke, bursting the bonds, earlier in Jeremiah, remember? Now, when you look at those five verses, do you feel like they all fit together with the same basic concept or the same basic theme, or do you think we need to break them down? Because a lot of commentaries put one and two together, and then they put three and five separate. What do y'all think? I'll give you the opportunity. We'll try to work through this together. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. What? What? Okay. The psalm break it down this way: that verses one through two is the looking for a righteous man. And three through five is Jeremiah's prayer. So they separate it. I'm not so sure about this concept. Now, again, we could have these debates all day long about this, how to organize it. I don't want to get too much into it. The only reason I like doing this is because for those who have been working on the Bible study exercise and just been reading and reading and reading, I like you to sometimes realize you got to slow down and see what's going on. So... How do, you, how do y'all perceive those five verses? Do y'all see that they should be broken into two sections? Or do you believe they all are one section? All right. Stephen goes with two-section concept. What do we feel? What do we feel? What do we feel? Right answers get $1,000. Wrong answers give me 10000 I don't know. It's not allowed as an answer. Okay, there's only one answer. Okay. All right. Okay, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna try this, and y'all can tell me if y'all because obviously I don't think y'all may be seeing it. So I'm gonna. Right, they're, they're tr- I do think there's a theme there, but I'm gonna throw this out there, and you can tell me whether you agree or not. All right. So Jeremiah five verse one. Run through the streets of Jerusalem, investigate, is how one Bible puts it. Another one, run ye to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem and see now and uh and, and see now and know and seek in the broad places thereof if you can find a man, if there be any that executeth judgment, the seek the truth, and I will pardon it. All right? Um, This one says, roam through the streets of Jerusalem, investigate, search her squares. If you find one person who acts justly, who pursues faithfulness, then I will forgive her. All right? Now, this seems to be, to me, this is just my thoughts, clearly that's God telling who to go investigate. Jeremiah. I think that's the one thing we can agree on. God is telling Jeremiah to go investigate. All right? Then... The next verse, and though they say the Lord liveth surely, they swear falsely, right? Or as another translation says, when they say, as the Lord lives, they're swearing falsely. So, hey, go and look, go and look. And then when you come upon someone and you start talking to them and they're like, well, as the Lord lives and they sound so pious and spiritual, hey, just know you may want to keep looking. They're lying. Now, if you were told to go investigate that, what would your response be? Would it be a little frustrating? Would it be a little irritating? So what happens in verse 3? O Lord, are not thine eyes upon the truth? Or this translation says, Lord, don't your eyes look for faithfulness? Immediately, this seems to be what is happening in verse 3. Jeremiah's responding. So I don't, I, I think the section all fits together because it's Jeremiah being told what to do, and then Jeremiah going, uh, I've got some issues here. I think it's all a discussion about this investigation. God tells him to investigate, and then Jeremiah has a response. So, what does he seem to say in verse 3? Different translations. O Lord, are not thine eyes upon the truth? Thou hast stricken them, but they have not grieved. Thou hast consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than a rock. They have refused to return. Another translation puts it this way. Lord, don't your eyes look for faithfulness. You have struck them, but they felt no pain. You finished them off, but they refused to accept discipline. They made their faces harder than a rock, and they refused to return. This is like someone saying, hey, uh, what do you want me to do? You want me to go look for all of these? You want me to go find a faithful person? These people won't even listen to whom? You. So implying they're not going to listen to me. Or, or am I misreading this? Hey, right? Is this not a back and forth? Right? Okay, what happens in verse 4? Therefore, I said, surely these are poor, they are foolish. For they know not the way of the Lord, nor the judgment of their God. Hey, hey, Lord, Lord I'm looking around. And it's almost like what is he saying? The reason these people don't listen is because basically they're the poor, uneducated people. They're the poor poor uneducated. They're the foolish. Hey, well, I don't think it's an excuse more than he's just expressing his frustration. You want me to go look and well, all of these people no well, first, nobody even listens to you. Second, the group, this group is. Uh, uneducated and a foolish and then what happens in the next verse? So I will get unto me the great men and will speak unto them for they have known the way of the Lord and the judgments of their God but these have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. So what does he do in verse 5? Well, he says, I will go, but, but then he says, however, they've broken the yoke and tore off the chains. Remember, we talked about that phrase earlier, yes, about who broke the yoke and who broke the chains, remember? And there was a big debate on who did it, okay? Clearly, in this verse, who did it? Well, he's saying that the people who have the power, the people who would be in charge, that what, what yokes have they broken? What chains have, have they broken, Yeah, they're basically thrown off restraint of God. So he's like, hey, I tried this. This seems to be Jeremiah very frustrated, very upset here. Now, once again, um, I think some people doing the Bible study exercise pointed this out. If we go back to verse 1, if we go back to verse 1, Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem and see now and know and seek in the broad places. There, if you, if you can find a man, if there be any that executeth judgment, that seeketh the truth and I will pardon it. Some could go, wait a minute. He could not find one person. They couldn't find one person. Now, some, so, some people were like, that, that doesn't seem to make any sense, Right. Uh, some commentaries pick up on this. Here's one. It says, um, speaking through Jeremiah, God exposed the corruption of Jerusalem of Jeremiah's day. It was as if there was not even one man who did right and sought after truth. We might say that this statement was hyperbole, a literary exaggeration to make a point. After all, we would hope that Jeremiah was such a man. I mean, Jeremiah's there, right? So couldn't Jeremiah just have said, well, I mean, I'm here, right? <laughs> right? Okay. Are you saying I'm trash too? Like, what do you, what do you say? Now, though he was from uh, Anathoth, not Jerusalem, so some would say, "Well, wait a minute, he's from a different place, so is this only from people from there?" Nevertheless, it's possible that it was literally true as well as being poetically true. So we could argue back and forth. Is this once again we're back to the literal or? Hyperbole, poetic hyperbole. I don't know. It, I, again, the more the more you move away from a literal thing, you see where things start getting really weird with how you interpret the book. I look, I, I, here's what I think, personally. God could tell us at any point in history, at any time, I don't care if it's Sodom and Gomorrah, I don't care if it's 1953 America with the white picket fence and a husband and wife and two dogs and a kid, I don't care how perfect you ever think any generation is you will never be able to run through any city and find one righteous person if you're looking for righteousness in what way practically you will never right couldn't god do that any time now, obviously, some people would disagree because, no, 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 we have to be righteous enough in order to prove our salvation. A lordship thing would approach this from a different way. I believe the reality, at any time God says, go find me someone, what, in every situation, what happens? <laughs> okay. There's destruction, right? Now, you could argue, well, wait a minute, there's always enough righteous that, like, you know, he pulled, pulled Lot's family out, but were they any more righteous than the people of so that their righteousness couldn't have been a practical righteousness because when you're offering up your daughters and you, your daughters get you drunk and have relations with you, I don't know how righteous you really are. Like, was Lot any better than the people in the city? I think the only way he was any better was because of some kind of a positional righteousness as Abraham was declared righteous by what? By faith, right? That's the only way I can understand it. I think literally that God at any time in history could say, Go find me one righteous person, and every single time, there's no point in even going to look. We should just simply say, there are none apart from your righteousness, right? That, that's thats my thoughts. Not everyone will agree with that, but that's okay, all right? So, uh, what? So we've looked at what verses so far? We looked at all five, right? We all went through five. So do we agree that basically, I, I, it, it feels like to me that God says, go look, and Jeremiah is basically saying what? Well, I don't know. I think it's all one section, personally. I mean, if you, if you want to break it up, you can't. I just think it starts the dialogue. It just starts, here's, here's the conversation. God's like, go look, and Jeremiah is like, he's responding to trying to look. But I think we can say that this section ends with what? What does what Jeremiah ultimately say when this is all said and done? There isn't. I can't find him. I can't find him among the foolish people. I can't find him among the educated, powerful people. So then, what happens in verse 6? All right. Um, I, I'm going to skip down in some of my notes. All right. Now, therefore, or wherefore, uh, this translation says that's verse 6, right? Therefore, now, the therefore meaning, because since you can't what? Since you, can found, can't you, since you can't find anyone, what's going to happen? Wherefore, a lion out of the forest shall slay them. And a wolf of the evening shall spoil them. A leopard shall watch over their cities. Everyone that goeth out this shall be torn in pieces because their transgressions are many and their backslidings are increased. There's the backslidings again. There's the backslidings again. How shall I pardon thee for this? Thy children have forsaken me and sworn by them that are no gods When I had fed them to the full, then they committed adultery and assembled themselves by troops in the harlots' houses. Wow, that's a (laughs) that's a vivid picture, right? Now we could get in and we could spend a lot of time trying to interpret the lion and the wolf as one commentary does just so that you know the lion represents strength and the desert wolf is ravenous and the leopard's swiftness, all traits of the Babylonians. So Nebuchadnezzar is called a lion for his cruelty, a wolf for his veracity, and a leopard for his slyness and his swiftness. To me, at least for us, you can can try to assign who it is, then you can go in history. But look, we don't need to spend a lot of time going through history, because the main thing is, we already know what happens to Judah, right? We know who got the north 100 years before all of this, and that was... Syrians, and we know who comes and takes the south away, Babylonians, so in other words, you could sit there and go, well, why would they be called a lot, you could try to break it all down and try to analyze it, we don't want to get lost in the weeds, clearly this is a reference to who is coming after them, the Babylonians are coming after them, alright, um, and just so you know, many towns were destroyed at the beginning of the sixth century BC and never again occupied. So that would be a, a more literal thing. Others were destroyed and reoccupied after a long period of abandonment. Um, and then they, different people talk about the archaeological evidence of the conquest of Judah. There's no seems to be no there seems to be no question about that. Nobody has much debate. Everyone knows they went into Babylonian captivity. All right. Now um, something here that. Just so that we, we know, uh, whenever we, we know over and over and over, or not over and over and over, but multiple times, their sin has been clearly described as an adulterous thing, right? And it's a spiritual adultery. As one commentary put it, uh, spiritual adultery, going after pagan gods, was also connected to sexual adultery. The so-called worship of pagan gods often involved prostitutes and sexual immorality. The ideas of spiritual and sexual adultery were connected and combined. So in some of these cases, it is clearly referring to spiritual adultery. But in certain situations, they were actually engaging in sexual actions and the worship of the false gods. And this same kind of thing happens where? And then in the city of Corinth, right? Or throughout history, right? That the false worship was connected with sexual immorality. And you may get a little picture of it there. We kind of just read it because what did it say? Yeah, they, they uh, verse seven, how shall I pardon thee for this, that children have forsaken me and sworn by them that, that are no gods When I had fed them to the full, then they committed adultery and assembled themselves by troops in the harlot's houses. I mean, that's, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I don't know how you can get that. As one commentary says it, Jeremiah not only saw multitudes going to the so-called sacred prostitutes, but they were organized as if an army by troops. This was a powerful and poetic description of how given over the people were to pagan worship and ritual prostitution. The main thing is, I think a lot of people look at the sexual aspect of it, and that's what they get preoccupied with. Don't get so focused on that. Focus on the spiritual adultery, right? Because we always have a tendency, if I can avoid the physical, then I'm good. But everyone is guilty of the spiritual in some way, shape, or form, right? So I think that we cannot just uh, skip that in any way, shape, or form. And I uh, I could go on forever on all the notes about everything going on there, but we won't get into all of that. Verse eight, they were as fed horses in the morning, everyone made after his neighbor's wife. Shall I not visit for these things, saith the Lord, and shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? Go ye up upon her walls, and destroy but make not a full end take away her battlements for they are not the lords now the main thing in verse 10 what do you what do you think you should take away from verse 10 okay all right well it just once again demonstrates who's in charge of the situation god which Again, the whole thing can be, the whole the, 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 the philosophical issues that arise in some of these things is so complicated and to try to figure out, and nobody has any good answers, right? Okay, God's the one controlling the judgment, right? Well, if God's the one controlling the judgment, well, number one, he could have stopped the false prophets from coming in, but he didn't. Number two, if God is the one who changes the heart and brings salvation to the people, why didn't he bring salvation to the people? And if God can change the heart, why didn't He change the heart? But He didn't change the heart. So then, some people say, "Well, the only answer is and then man has a free will." Well, then if man has a free will, then oh, it just goes, it just oh, right, exactly. So why didn't He change the heart then? Exactly, right. So that I mean, look, I don't have any easy answers for. It. There's no easy answers, right? Because either you have to say man is the one who does it all, well, then that has a heart. Then you have to say then man's will is not impacted by their fall. That then creates basically a, a semi-Pelagian to a Pelagian. We don't agree with that. But then if you say the heart is completely wicked and dead and trespasses in sin, and God is the one who does something, then you're like, well, God, why are you bringing judgment on them? Just change their heart. But then God doesn't change the heart. But then, as you just pointed out, and the restoration, he's going to. So then, who gets blamed for this? Right? I mean, it raises, I mean, those are the questions nobody in church ever wants to ask. Nobody ever wants to even approach that subject. But, I mean, God's the one who brought, allowed sin in the world in the first place, right? I mean, it's so, and then there's times God steps in to stop sin, and there's God times God... Doesn't and you're like, well, wait a minute, how does that work? Why did you? Why do you like it, it, There's just so many questions and so many uh, nobody, but I bet we, but you can't just ignore it. That what to me, we don't, we may never have the answer, but what drives me crazy is Christians are never bothered by it. That's what I don't understand. Like, I can read a hundred articles written by atheists or agnostics, and they're like, this makes no sense. And then you go to any Christian and are like, oh, praise God, it's awesome, it's amazing, and I was convicted by it. I'm like, you don't see the nine million philosophical problems here? And even when we looked at Jeremiah 4, Jeremiah at least, I mean, we looked at the verse, and we, we didn't spend a lot of time with it, but, you know, everyone admits that it's crazy. Jeremiah 4.10, then said I, this is Jeremiah speaking, Oh Lord, God, surely thou hast greatly deceived this people and Jerusalem saying, you shall have peace, whereas the sword reacheth unto the soul. Jeremiah seems to be blaming whom for the problem? God. Well, here's the thing. I think anyone who reads the Bible should be like Jeremiah and go, I don't get it, God. But you're not allowed to do that in church. You're not like, no, 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 no. Don't you dare. How dare you say that? I think any reasonable person would be like, well, this situation seems completely out of control, but who's supposedly in control? And how much is God in control? What did we just read in the last verse there in Jeremiah 5 and that section that we just ended? Verse 10. Go ye up upon her walls. Who is God talking to? He's telling the Babylonians what to do. Go ye up on the, on the on walls, and destroy, but make not a full land. He's literally controlling what the Babylonians are doing. If he can control what the Babylonians is doing, then could he not control what Judah is doing? <laughs> right? Like any reasonable person reading this should stop and go, well wait, this makes no sense. If you can control the Babylonians, and they're pouring out judgment upon those people why don't you control the people who's going to be judged because all they need to do to be to, to avoid judgment is what they're just going to repent so if God can control the evil heart why can't he control supposedly the believing heart? I mean that's that's crazy to read like anyone reading this should be like, I don't understand, I don't understand. Then what happens in verse 11? So one through five, we could basically call that what God's conversation with Jeremiah, right? About, I mean, they have a conversation there. Don't you agree? I don't know, however you want to call it. Go, uh, God's conversation with Jeremiah about him searching for a righteous man. Then verses six through 10 is basically what? Uh, This is about the judgment coming. And then what happens starting in verse 11? For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt treacherously against me, saith the Lord. They have believed the Lord and said, they have, I'm sorry, belied the Lord and said, it is not he, neither shall evil come upon us, neither shall we see sword nor famine, And the prophets shall become wind, and the word is not in them. Thus shall it be done unto them. All right, what is going on in just those couple of verses there? All right? If I read it from a different translation, we have it this way. All right, that's starting in verse 11, right? Now, this Bible uh, starts this section in 10, but okay, we'll just go start in 11 they, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, have dealt very treacherous, treacherously with me. This is the Lord's declaration. So God says, hey, they've tre- treated me in a horrible way. And then this is his declaration. They, th- this is how they translate it. They have contradicted the Lord and insisted it won't happen. Harm won't come to us. We won't see sword or famine. I think we can understand that part, Right. They won't listen. Now, of course, what the rational question is well, why won't they listen? Well, because of their heart. Well, couldn't God change the heart? This leads to all of those kinds of philosophical questions. All right, but they will not listen. Then, that next verse, what's going on in the next verse? Yeah, verse 13. Or verse 12, they have contradicted the Lord and it says it won't happen to us. Harm won't come to us. And then verse 13, the prophets become only wind for the Lord's word is not in them. This will in fact happen to them. But what what do you think is being said here in this verse? So is God saying the prophets will become wind? Okay, that's what the people are saying, that the prophets have become wind, and the word is not in them, thus shall it be done unto them. In other words, are they? is this saying that the people are looking at the prophets going, hey, what they say is useless, these things are not going to happen to us, it's going to happen to them. Does everyone think that that's a good idea of understanding it? Here's how one oh, wait, did you have a different idea, Stephen? No, no, i no, 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 no. Okay. Alright, what 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 do we need to fix? I saying, well, I mean, the prophets are, so that's the people saying that about the prophets? Right. How many think that's the people saying that about the prophets? Okay. Because we have how many verses before this where clearly God is saying what the people have said, right? or God gives out how the people have responded, yes? Okay, the the first one where they start talking about what the people said. What verse is it? In this section, and 12, right? And in 12, what does it say? They have belied the Lord and said, Right. Yeah, that's what the people. Yeah, the people are saying the, the prophets are just basically full of wind. They're just full of hot air. Right, right, right. But they, but well, the people here think it's going to happen to the prophets, not to them, because they believe the prophets are bringing them what kind of a word? A, a rock, not gods. Yeah, they, they don't believe that they're speaking for God. This is how one commentary puts it. All right. The false prophets, now this is how they describe it. And the prophets became wind for the wind is not in them. Now this is how they describe it. The false prophets were nothing more than wind. Movement without substance, God's word was not in them and their so-called prophetic words were not from them, not from the substance of God's word. They say this is a reference to the false prophets. Oh, I love, I love hermeneutics. I love hermeneutics. What do you think? You look at your study Bibles? Do, 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 look at everything. Do everything you want to do. Call a friend, ask whoever. You can do whatever. Just see what you, what you could come up with. All right? Because immediately we just real. because I, I knew y'all were going to go one direction, but I knew I had notes here that went a different direction. So I wanted to see which way y'all would go. That's what verse? 13. Okay. Right. Now just hang on. My study Bible here, they purposely skip which verse? 13. <laughs> they, they skip 13. All right. This commentary has 13. Now, someone just said based on verse 14. Okay, I agree, right? Okay, so in verse 14, Wherefore, therefore, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, because ye speak this word, behold, I will make my words and thy mouth fire, and this people would, and it shall devour them. If they were saying those things about the false prophets, then why would God do this to them? It doesn't make any sense, does it? Now, I just want you to see that, that once again, we have a commentary going in a completely opposite direction then we were going. We tried to walk through this and then we come to a commentary and all of a sudden now we had confusion. So let's see, let's, let's go through this again and see if we are all on the same page, all right? I, I was somewhat shocked when I looked at this commentary and I'm like, wait a minute. They, they are saying that this is God, that almost as if this is God speaking against the Father. but it, we, this can't be God. I don't believe God is speaking here, Right? He seems to be saying what the people are. So let's go back to this entire section, all right? So it starts in verse 11. Does everyone agree that seems to be the place where this section begins? How many agree? Yeah, some, some Bibles skip, uh, don't have it starting in 11. Others do. Yeah, and then for the... I I think the section begins in 11. That's my argument. Right? So do we all agree the section begins in 11? How many are, like, in absolute agreement with that? Okay, good. All right. So, man, we're agreeing on things. At some point, someone's going to have to start arguing with me, all right? I'm not going to know what to do, right? Okay, well... (laughs) If the Bible agrees with me, then I got to be right. Okay, now all right, here we go. Just know all of those little markings and separations. Remember, that's not in the original. Just so that we know, I know you know. I just want to make sure we know that. All right, all right. But I, but I do like that you're giving me some kind of support here. All right, here we go. Verse eleven: For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt very treacherously against me, saith the Lord. So he is laying out that you guys, these two, both the north and the south, have treated me in a horrible way. Does that seem clear? All right. Then, next verse. They have, and I said believed, they have belied the Lord. I was getting so excited and reading too fast. They have belied the Lord, because I'm looking at my clock and like, I've got to finish this chapter, right? But we, I knew this section was going to, all the wheels were going to come off right here, all right? They have belied the Lord and said, it is not he. He. So what what are they doing right there in the beginning of verse twelve? This may be the key to understanding this section. What are they doing in verse twelve? Okay, well, okay, good. You're 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 giving a good interpretation, right? (laughs) But I'm just trying to go. I'm, I'm going to try to be very careful here, right? The so they have treated the Lord in a wrong way. Okay, and then they have contradicted the Lord and insisted it won't happen, harm won't come to us, is how that one reads. This one, uh, the King James is, they have belied the Lord and said, it is not he, uh, it is not he. Now when they say it is not he, that's the part I want you to focus on. Sarah just kind of gave us the full interpretation. When they say he is not he, he is saying what? That they are not listening to the prophet. Jeremiah or anybody else who's saying judgment is coming. They're not listening. And what 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 are they not listening to? They're co- contradicting the message. What do they say? Neither shall evil come upon us. Neither shall we see sword nor famine, and the prophet shall become wind. Okay, oh boy, here we go. All right. Right, right, okay. Yeah, but they're, they're, they're stressing that they're not listening to God. Now, if it's them not listening to God, I don't know how the next verse switches that now they're saying bad things about the false prophets. That makes no sense to me. Zero sense. And it makes no sense that in verse 12, all of a sudden, God speaks against the false prophets. Right, but there are false prophets in here. But, right, because we already see it in Jeremiah 4.10. So, but I just don't feel like that God all of a sudden is like, hey, now I've got, uh, you know, hey, the reason these people are saying this is because of the false prophets. I don't see that happening. I think he's still speaking of what, how they're acting. And how are they acting? That they're acting like that the true prophets have become wind. Right? Well, I mean, they're, they, they, they're not acting arrogant. They're acting like they're on the, they're on the spirit. They're on the right side. Like that, they hey, we know that those prophets don't know what they're talking about. It, 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 it can it, well it can happen anywhere, right? I mean, this happens within Christianity for two thousand years, right? So these Christians say one thing, and the other Christians say they're full of hot air. They don't know what they're talking about. We're right. That's wrong. That's not the right interpretation. You're wrong. And we're going to go start. Another church, and we're going to go start another denomination, or I'm going to go to another church. Right? Because everyone thinks they're right, and when everyone thinks they're right, who do they think is on their side? They think God is on their side. So I, I don't know how you interpret this. Oh, oh, I'm, 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 I'm afraid how many emails I'm going to get, uh, but I, I don't know how we can say, and because some of you are looking at punctuation. What is the punctuation at the end of verse uh, 12 in every Bible? What do we have? Oh, the NIV has a period, of course. Okay, shocker. Okay. Colon, colon, colon. Okay. The NIV puts a period. Oh my goodness. Why? Okay, why? Why is it always the NIV that's got to hurt? Okay, how, what does this one do? All right. Oh, this one puts a period as well. Okay, oh man, all right. Okay, Ugh. that oh, that drives me crazy, okay? But, and once again, I know, like, like I try to just ignore all the punctuation, and because that's the more godly way, because it was not in the original, right? So punctuation is a work of Satan, okay? It's not inspired scripture. But, in this case, you, when the punctuation works a certain way, can it be so helpful in interpreting? Now, for those who know all about punctuation, for all of the experts here, the punctuation Nazis and all of those. the fact that some translations put a period. How would that impact the interpretation of the next verse? Debate amongst yourselves and then give me your expert opinions. Right? I'm just, I'm just, I just want to just say, I just want because look, we want to be fair, right? Well, are we worried about which side we fall in? We don't care about sides. All we care about is trying to understand the text. So we want to be fair with the text. All right, if the punctuation in the NIV and other Bibles puts a period there, does that impact how we then interpret that verse about the prophets being like wind? And so even though it's a period, we feel like, we feel like, hey, that, that's not all of a sudden God jumping back in and saying, okay, well, I've got some problems with these. Okay. Okay, good. All right. All right. I just wanted to make sure that we weren't, hey, when I, when I, when I get to an area where I know may not be as confident, I'm going to ask you guys who know more about punctuation than I do to just make sure I'm not missing something. Because I, I feel like it's obvious. I feel, feel like it's clear as day. But i got a very well-known commentary here telling me that I'm wrong. Okay? So, and we got... Now, I I was hoping if none of them had a period, then there would be no way to make the argument, right? There would be no way to make the argument. Okay. Do I? Well, 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 the commentary... But but I'd I'd, I'd have to go... I don't remember which uh, translation they're utilizing. They may be using a translation where there's a period, right? All right? I'm just saying, look, I, look, it's, it's frustrating. Like, on one hand, I could just say, well, they don't know. Like, I, I, I completely disagree. But isn't it crazy that people who probably have studied the Bible more than all of us in this room combined would come to such a radically different conclusion than we reading the exact same words in the exact same book? Isn't that the frustrating part of Christianity? Yeah, oh yeah, oh I agree. The way it's written, it's clearly, he's saying, here's what the people have done. They, they're walking around. Why are the people walking around going, this is not going to happen to us? Why are they walking around saying, this is, isn't that what he says in the previous verse? This is not going to happen to us? Why are the people saying that? And he's saying they're dealing treacherously with me because they're not believing me. They're not listening to me. They are walking around saying the absolute opposite. Well, how has God spoken to them? By prophets. So if they're walking around saying that, then we know they're not listening to whom? The prophets. Then the very next verse. Well, I'm saying that before that, they they say the prophets are? Are but wind. And that it's going to happen. It's going to be Like, it's insane. Like, to me, it's insane how the people are like, listen, like, they think they're the right one, like the prophets, and they're like, you know, you're gonna get judged. You're. They literally think the prophets are going to receive the judgment and not them. How can you be so spiritually deceived to not realize that? Like, I'm, to me, that scares me to death, right? That the actual prophets of God can come to the people of God, and the people of God are like, you're nothing but a bag of air and you're gonna be judged. I'm okay. And you're like, how can that happen? How can that happen? And then we come along and we can't even agree on how to... Tra- <laughs> Christians can't even agree on how to interpret the verse. That is insane to me. I don't know how many commentaries go which way. It would be crazy. I haven't read enough of them today. But we'll have to see. Now, we got to finish this chapter, all right? We're, we're, we're not close, but okay. All right. So then verse 14 Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, because you speak the word, behold, I will make my words in thy mouth fire, and this people wood, and it shall devour them. Now, who do you, what, what do you think is happening in verse 14? When he says, uh, I'm gonna, I'm, because ye speak his word, behold, I will make my words in thy mouth. Who is he referring to here? Okay. Well, I'm, I'm asking you guys. I'm... Right, now, this is how one commentary puts it. In contrast to the prophets of wind, God would make Jeremiah a prophet of fire. Now, that's because they say the prophets of wind are false prophets, okay? So they're saying, they're drawing a contrast between the prophets of wind and Jeremiah. Jeremiah is now the prophets of fire, and he's going to speak what the prophets of wind weren't. That's, see, they're, they're carrying their, their concept all the way into this verse. Does everybody see now we have a problem? No, I'm saying this commentary, do you see how they're they're handling it? Right, I know. But I'm just saying, so how do we understand it? Is he drawing a correlation is God now saying, "Hey, I'm going to contrast you with these prophets because if the other prophets weren't being heard, then he, is he saying I'm going to do something extra with Jeremiah?" All right. I think that is a precursor to the next sentence though about the nation coming down for Okay, but right. But so y'all don't y'all don't y'all, ever, y'all still good. Y'all still fine. Y'all don't have any problems here with verse 14. Y'all good. So, y'all like, okay. So, they since they didn't listen to the prophets, Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, because ye speak his word, because ye speak this word, because ye speak this word, speaking to Jeremiah, behold, I will make my words and thy mouth fire, and this people would, and it shall devour them. It's what he's saying here in verse 14, since they would not listen to the prophets, right? And they treated them like they're full of wind. Then what I'm going to do for you is you're going to be a prophet of fire but your words are going to devout your words are just going to bring judgment upon them not salvation upon them. Is that a fair way of a fair way of saying it? Y'all okay with that? Okay, verse fifteen. Lo, I will bring a nation upon you from far, O house of Israel, saith the Lord. It is a mighty nation. It is an ancient nation. A nation whose language thou knowest not, neither understandest what they say. They quiver. Their quiver is an open sepulchre. They all are. Uh, they are all mighty men, and they shall eat up thine harvest and thy bread, which thy sons and thy daughters should eat. They shall eat up the flocks and thine herds. They shall eat up the vines and the fig trees. They shall impoverish thy fenced cities, wherein thou trustest with the sword. Nevertheless, in those days, saith the Lord, I will make a full end with you, and it shall come to pass, when you shall say, Wherefore doth the Lord our God, where do, where doeth the Lord our God all these things unto us? Then shalt thou answer then, like as ye have forsaken me and served strange gods in your land, so shall ye, ye serve strangers in a land that is not yours. Basically saying, okay, Jeremiah, you're going to be a, a, a prophet of fire and you're going to devour them because you're going to pronounce what? This judgment that's coming upon them and they're going to be destroyed. And then that leads us to the, just the last, we're going to have to go through the last part quick, all right? Verse 20. Declare this in the house of Jacob, and publish it in Judah, saying, Hear now this, O foolish people, and without understanding, which have eyes, and see not, which have ears, and hear not. Fear ye not me, saith the Lord, will you not tremble at my presence, which have placed the sand for the bond of the sea, by a perpetual decree, that it cannot pass it. And they, and though the waves thereof toss themselves, yet... Can, can they not prevail though they roar yet can they not pass over it but this people have a revolting and a rebellious heart they are revolted and gone neither say they in their heart let us now fear the Lord our God that giveth rain both in the former and the latter in his season he reserveth unto us his appointed weeks of the harvest now I, I don't know about you I have some philosophical problems here right What is the philosophical problem you should run into looking at verse 22? I know I was reading that really fast because we're already out of time. but But just what, does everyone say a possible philosophical problem? Fear ye not me. That's God speaking, right? Saith the Lord, will you not tremble at my presence, which have placed the sand for the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass it? If God can create a situation where the sea has to stay where it is, why can't He create? Why does He not have people who don't break forth and rebel? If He can have the sea stay where it's supposed to, why can't He have people stay where they want to? Is He not the Creator of? I guess I was reading that as being He's sovereign over all things. Right, but if He's sovereign over all things, why isn't He sovereign over the people? and Now He's about to judge. Right, I mean, if he's sovereign over the earth, uh, now this comes to well, no, God is sovereign, but he's not sovereign over man's will. This is this would be lead to a, a free will perspective, but if it's a free will perspective, then uh, that just leads to semi-Pelagian or Pelagianism. But any rational person reading this isn't that the question you should ask? Well, congratulations, you can make an ocean and put the and the sand there, and it can't re, re, revolt against it, but you can't do that for us? Because guess what? If the ocean comes over the sand, does the ocean spend an eternity burning in hell? The answer is no. But if we revolt against God, we burn forever. That's a little troubling, is it not? No, well, obviously they have a a revolting and rebellious heart. Right, because... Sin entered into the world that God did not stop, and then He allowed every person born after that to have what kind of a heart—a rebellious and sinful heart. But who allowed sin into the world? Well, I'm just saying that's a tr- That's a tr- I, I, It's just weird. I, you re- you say this to Christians, and everybody kind of looks at you like, "What's the big deal?" That's a big deal to me. Hey, He can control the ocean, but He can't control the heart. And, if he, and you say, well, no, he can control the heart. Well, then if he can control the heart, then why would he allow the heart to rebel so that that people spend an eternity in hell? These are difficult questions, all right? And we got one last section and then we're done. I'm just gonna be, have to read it. Your iniquities have turned away though these things and your sins have withholden good things from you. For among my people are found wicked men. They lay wait. He that setteth snares, they set a trap, they catch men. As a cage is full of birds, so are their houses full of deceit. Therefore they have become great and waxen rich. They're waxen fat, they shine, yet they overpass the deeds of the wicked. They judge not the cause, the cause of the fatherless. Yet they prosper and the right of the needy. Do they not judge? Not only are these people evil, they're hurting other people. Shall I not visit for these things, saith the Lord? Shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? A wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. And so what will ye do in the end thereof? Now, I mean, that's a, that's, a, a bad, that's a bad way to end. It's a depressing way to end. But it ends with, this is how else do we describe the people of Judah? They, they think they're right. They don't think anything's going to happen to them. They won't listen to the false prophets. Or they won't listen to the true prophets. They'll listen to the false prophets. And they think they're justified and they think they're right. And they're being horribly judged. They're going to be so judged that people are going to die. And, like, on one hand, you have to ask yourself, at least logically, God couldn't find a different way? There was no other way to fix this. No other way. He can create the ocean and control the ocean, but he can't control these people. So the only thing he can do is let them literally be taken slaves. Who knows how many people die, right, between the Assyrian and Babylonian situation. They're going to be slaves for 70 years and it's just like, yeah, that that's a that's a troubling situation. Now for us, it's just it's scary to think how we can think we are right when we are so horribly wrong, and how we cannot listen, even and how we can listen and say, no, that's the truth and that's the lie when we are completely got it backwards. What we're calling a lie is actually. The truth and what we're calling the truth is actually the lie. That is a frightening thing to consider. And that's 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 that chapter. All right. I wanted to get to chapter six, but we'll have to stop right there. All right. Anybody have any questions? No? All right. Everybody now has experts on the chapter? Right. I don't know. For me. I, I don't think you guys feel the same. But man, when I read those chapters, I just have some major philosophical problems here. I'm just like, what is going on? Like, what is happening here? There's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way. And, and so I can understand. I do understand those who read a book like this, I can understand why you have to go full-blown free will. But even if you go full-blown free will, who gave God the will? Who gave people the will? Knowing exactly what they would do with it. And if God and, and then and if the if the will is truly free, then God can't do anything to it. And if God can't do anything to the will because they to have it remain free, well then you would have to say depravity doesn't impact the will. And if depravity doesn't impact the will, now you're back to full blown Pelagianism or semi-pelagianism. And not only that, there's no point in praying for anybody because God can't do anything. So then the whole thing becomes a mess, right? So I it's just I don't know. It's so you just sit there and go, man, this is such a horrible situation. And that sand passage just really bothers me because it's like, great that you, you keep the, sand, the ocean where it belongs. But even if the ocean was to rebel, nothing happens to it. These people rebel and people are going to die. That's troubling to me. That's troubling to me. And not only die, what's the eternal consequence? Hell, that is hard to wrap my mind around. But all right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. There is no way to even pretend that these words are easy, that these words even make sense. And it is very frustrating at times, Lord, that even amongst Christians, we can't even agree on how to interpret some of these very, what we feel are straightforward verses where there's not even agreement on it. And if we can't agree on the verses, then we clearly have a trouble disagreeing even on the complicated concepts here. Some of these concepts are way beyond our ability to understand. There's so much, your ways are not our ways, your thoughts are not our thoughts, and this is a good example of us not understanding sometimes your ways. Forgive us for not understanding and help us do our best by faith to try to accept what we see by faith because our minds cannot In many cases, comprehended. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,